Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. single ladies all the single ladies that's not part of the show though it is now uh welcome to dark poutine i'm mike brown creator and host with me as usual is my good friend and co-host scott hemingway say hello scott Uh, i'm gonna say hello to all the gorgeous people out there okay they're gorgeous this week all of them all the gorgeous people if you're listening to the show you are gorgeous and we love you well that's very nice it is it is And factually correct. Podcasts don't lie. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Episode 90. Woo! Whoa. This is getting bonkers. Ten more and we're in triple digits. Yeah. It's just fucking... Just bonkers. Ten more. Yeah. Could you have imagined that, uh, like, when we first sat down, we'd be 90 episodes deep with millions of I downloads? I didn't think we'd get two episodes deep. <laughs> you know, knowing us and our abilities to have ideas and not see them all through. Yeah. Like, to, to be at 90 episodes, going strong... It's, it's, it's pretty remarkable. It's amazing, yeah. to tell you the truth. Yeah, it really is. So this week's episode takes us back across the country to my home province, Nova Scotia. And this one I have a bunch of personal connections to that we'll get through as we okay. go along. I love it when we have personal connections. It's a case that I've been wanting to cover for some time. And my interest of true crime has many of its roots in this story that happened oh. one late spring night in 1971. Oh, in a local park in the Cape Breton city of Sydney. Did it have to do with gnome thievery? No, uh. there is no gnome thievery. It's uh. actually a murder. Oh, shit. Well, let's let's do this. This is miscarried justice, the murder of Sandy Seal, and conviction of Donald Marshall Jr. On the evening of Friday, May 28th, 1971, 14-year-old Maynard Chant 
had been driven to Sydney from Lewisburg by his devout Christian parents and dropped off to attend a church service at the Pentecostal Church on Victoria Road in Sydney. Maynard was bored by the church service. Thinking he'd rather be out partying with others his age, he left the church early with the hope of meeting up with his friends. Maynard was no angel. As well as other minor incidents, he'd been convicted as a young offender for swiping milk bottle money in 1970, left out for the local milkman overnight. Most likely an employee of the now defunct modern city dairy. This is a petty crime, sure, but as I recall, it was a gateway crime for a few people who I personally knew who went on to do more serious crimes. Not to uh, downplay that crime or anything, but my God, the leaving money on your doorstep? You didn't leave it on your doorstep, you left it in your mailbox? Oh, still. And Or in your milk box, there yeah. was a box for yeah. milk. Yeah, and, and it was just a, a thing people trusted, but... Yeah. Typically, young guys with a chip on their shoulder yeah. will go around and steal milk money. It's I knew like, I knew a few guys who did that. I can't imagine, like, you know, dropping a 20 or whatever on, and leaving it on my doorstep. And then, like, if I came home and it was gone, I'd be like, hmm, shit, yeah, I guess that's... that's it wouldn't that. have been a 20 at that time. It was probably, like, $2.50 yeah, well, for yeah. two jugs of milk. Yeah, 71, yeah. Yeah, but... Uh, yeah, wow. I just, that caught me more than the thievery is, wow, people were leaving money on their door? Yeah. After he was unable to find the buddy he was supposed to take the bus home with, Maynard walked around looking for something to do. He spent too much time wandering near the pier at King's Road. Realizing he was about to miss his bus back to Lewisburg, he ran to the bus depot. Mm -hmm. He arrived to find the bus had left ten minutes ago. Oh no. Uh oh. It was probably more than a third of the way back to Lewisburg by then. Rather than Chance having to explain the situation to his parents in a late night phone call, Maynard decided that he'd hitchhike home. It was just after midnight. Oh, anytime I, it is a true crime story and I hear the word hitchhike, it's just like, oh, oh, my heart. But not in this one. Oh. Not in this case. Whoa. As Maynard was making his way toward George Street, where he hoped to hitch a ride, he had to pass the darkened Wentworth Municipal Park. Out of the darkness near the park came another youth running up toward Maynard wearing a bright yellow jacket. The two had seen each other before at local dances. Mm. The young man was Donald Marshall Jr., also just called Junior, a 17-year-old of Mi'kmaq heritage. And according to a website dedicated to the preservation of the indigenous Mi'kmaq culture, quote, the word Mi'kmaq actually comes from the word Nigma or my friends, which the early French misunderstood as the name of the people. The Mi'kmaq actually referred to themselves as Inuk or Ulnug, the people. The Mi'kmaq were the dominant tribe in the Canadian Maritimes, but in most ways, other than language, they were similar to the Maliseet in New Brunswick and the Abnaki of northern New England. And I don't know if I pronounced Maliseet or Abnaki correctly, but that's how they're written. So yeah, that's yeah. how I'm going to do it. Yeah. In today's classifications, Mi'kmaq belong to the Algonquin group. Okay. And so that's end quote. Love, I love getting that history. When he came up to Maynard, he was bleeding and clearly upset. Oh, jeez. From Michael Harris's book, Justice Denied, quote, Look at what they did to me. Marshall said, showing Chant a four-and-a-half-inch gash on his left forearm. Oh, Who? Maynard asked. 
Two fellows over in the park, Marshall said. My buddy's over there with a knife in his stomach. End quote. Whoa. After explaining the same story to two couples passing by, Marshall and Chant flagged down a ride back to Crest Street where a black teenager, 17-year-old Sanford, or Sandy Seal, lay in a pool of his own blood. Holy shit. Overhearing raised voices talking about a stabbing, a neighborhood man who just happened to be a retired RCMP officer had called Sydney police to explain what he'd seen. He'd given a description of a brown Chevy Nova he'd seen the yellow-jacketed man get into, and then it drove off back toward King's Road. Mm. Sandy Seal had been discovered by another group in the meantime. These were teens walking home from a dance, and one of them had run off to get help. When she returned, the Brown Nova was just arriving. Junior Marshall and Maynard Chant hopped out. Okay. Sandy Seal moaned weakly that he'd been stabbed and was saying he thought he was going to die. Junior Marshall again showed his cut to the group of people gathering around, saying, I was there. Marshall did not approach Sandy Seal to offer help. Hmm. Maynard took off his white church-going shirt and used it to help stem the flow of blood that was coming from the cut and pooling around Sandy Seal's body. Chant also began to wonder why Marshall wasn't helping. He thought he was acting weird. Hmm. Okay. You, you would think, one would think that your natural instinct would be to try to aid. Well, he did run off to get help. Yeah, but maybe he just didn't know what to do. You know, I you know, and it's true because we always assume it's easy on the outside to mm-hmm. say how somebody should react. It's not easy when you're the one there to know what you should do. On a bystander's suggestion, Marshall went to a nearby house to ask for an ambulance. Police were called too. Mm-hmm. When the police arrived at the scene again, Marshall showed the cut on his arm to one of the responding officers, saying they'd be attacked by a man with a knife. It took a while for the ambulance to come. It was a busy night, and there had been a bad car accident around the same time that was tying them up. Sandy's intestines were protruding from the gash in his abdomen. Oh, jeez, yeah, okay. This is not good. Yeah. Oh, oh. Sandy Seal was finally transported to the hospital around a half hour later. His parents, Oscar and Leotha Seal, rushed to the hospital to be by their son's side. However, they were refused access to him having to sit in a waiting room for hours to hear about their son's progress or lack of it. Oh my god, that would be so painful. Yeah, just, you just can't oh see him. Oh my yeah. god. The superficial but bloody cut on Junior Marshall's arm was stitched up, but while his cut was being cleaned to prep him for that, a nurse noticed a tattoo on his arm that chilled her to the bone. It said, I hate cops. Okay. After the commotion died down, Maynard Chant picked up his bloody shirt and went back to hitchhiking home. And I guess, especially in the early 70s, a tattoo like that would be much more jarring than it is now. Junior Marshall gave a description of the two men to the cops attending at the hospital. From Bill Swan's book, Real Justice, Convicted of Being Mi'kmaq, Marshall told the police, quote, One man, heavy set, short, dark blue coat to his knees, hair gray, black low shoes, wearing glasses and dark rims. Second man, tall, about 5'11", black hair, clean-shaven, corduroy coat, three-quarter length, brown in color, end quote. Hmm. An APB went out to every unit in the city. Meanwhile, Maynard Chant was picked up as he was hitchhiking by police and brought back to the hospital to talk to investigators there as well. Yeah. 
He was saying he'd, quote, seen everything, but was not formally interviewed at that time. Okay, uh, okay. From Bill Swan's book, Real Justice, quote, despite his claim to have, quote, seen it all, McDonald took no statement from Chant. McDonald was the police officer. Neither did he bother to talk to the first four officers on the scene. Donald Marshall Jr. had given a good description of the guy with the knife. What more could the detective need? For a few minutes, Maynard and Donald waited in the hospital corridor. Donald said, there were two of them, right? Maynard shrugged. One police officer beckoned Donald, then led him down the corridor. We got two young guys we want you to have a look at, the officer said. He pointed at two other teens seated in the waiting area. Those the guys, the officer asked. Donald took one look at the pair and told the officer, no, that's not them, end quote. <sighs> okay. Uh, it seems like a lot of pretty key detective work was really overlooked at the time. At, at the time. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it could have been the excitement just to get this young man who was bleeding into the hospital. Absolutely. He had been stabbed once, so they didn't know whether or not he was going to live, but being stabbed once typically doesn't equal death either. Yeah, you would think though having somebody say, I saw it all. Mm -hmm. That you would want no, to question. Yeah, right? no matter what evidence you may already have or anything, because you're going to court, the more you have, the better. So you would think though, even if you you can't yep. take the time you think, you would you would call, hey, Brian, can you come and take this guy's statement? But, uh, you know, yeah, it's easy. Again, it's easy on the outside. As Marshall was leaving the hospital with the two cops who'd drive him back home to his parents' home in the Member 2 Reserve, he passed a treatment room where doctors were working on a blood-covered Sandy seal. Hmm. He indicated later that it shook him seeing Sandy there. Yeah, oh, I can imagine. Yeah. Maynard's father picked him up around 3.15 at the Sydney police station, and this 3.15 in the morning. And so you've got a son Shift. who's already been causing trouble, was yeah. supposed to be at church, and uh, you're picking him up from the police station. So if I'm his dad, I'm going to be pretty PO'd. And let me get this straight. So he was 14 Four at this? Yeah, he was 14 years old. Wow. wow. Yeah. Wow. And this is the, the evening that he's had already. What What churches, like? Because this all took place, you said, around uh, 11 or midnight? I don't know. Right? Well, it... he went wandering after church in the evening. Oh, okay. All right. Word had gotten back to the reserve that it was actually Junior Marshall who'd been murdered in the park. Mm. His family was expecting bad news when the patrol car pulled up, but they were relieved to see him get out of the car relatively unharmed, save for the bandage on his arm. Yeah, I, oh, yeah. Pleasant surprise when you're hearing... Donald Marshall Jr. had a bit of a rep as a scrapper. Mm. From Michael Harris's book, Justice Denied, quote, they called him Little Rock in the adolescent battlegrounds of Sydney. Junior Marshall was known as a kid who could throw his hands with the best of them, oh. end quote. So he was a fighter. 14. No, Marshall was 17 at the time. Oh, yeah, okay, I got confused there. Okay, well, still, yeah. but... Uh, yeah. Okay. Despite the reputation, Junior came from a decent home. Both his mom, Carolyn, and dad, Donald Sr., worked and were respected in the reserve. Mm. His mom was a cleaner at the hospital, and Donald Sr. ran a successful plastering business. Donald Marshall Sr. was also the Grand Chief of the Mi'kmaq Nation. 
So he's the chief. Yeah. Making him, according to Harris's book, the spiritual leader of the 5,000 Mi'kmaq living in the Maritimes, primarily in Nova Scotia. So that's a pretty prestigious uh, yeah. role to have. Totally. Uh, this made Junior, the eldest boy, the next logical choice for Grand Chief. Hmm. Donald Marshall Jr. was the oldest of 13 kids in the family, four boys, seven girls, and two more children in need who'd been adopted. Oh, okay, sweet. So it sounds like a good family, really although does. very busy family. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, uh, yeah, hardworking parents, dedicated parents. Uh, a spiritual leader like the Grand Chief of the Mi'kmaq. Yep, yep. You know, like that's, so. That's a, that, that is not uh, a, a title acquired that's easily. That's like Prime Minister of Canada. Yeah. Like, because it's a nation. Yep. He's essentially the prime minister of their nation. Yeah, that's pretty, yeah. A, a pretty prestigious position. After elementary school, Junior Marshall was forced into a white school where he didn't feel like he fit. Mm. He failed a few grades. He was expelled from school after hitting a teacher who had grabbed him by the ear for chewing gum in class. That's a bit of a heavy price for chewing gum. Well, hit the teacher. Um, okay. All right. Yeah. I guess I glossed over that part. Yeah. Rather than go to Shelburne School for Boys, where many other Mi'kmaq boys who misbehaved were sent at the time, Junior opted to become an apprentice plaster under his father. Marshall later stated that he hated school and felt the white kids were treated better than the indigenous kids. I agree, mm -hmm. but I'll get into more on that later. Donald was an average hell-raising teen, smoking and drinking with his friends and chasing girls. Marshall was, however, known to the local police for fighting and other petty offenses. Mm -hmm. From Bill Swan's Real Justice, quote, In one incident, a bootlegger at the Member 2 Reserve was attacked by a group of drunken teens. Late one night, the group ran out of something to drink and woke up the bootlegger. The bootlegger refused and barred his front door with a two-by-four. The teens, including Donald, broke in and took a bottle of wine from the man's fridge. Damn. That doesn't sound like a real... <laughs> if you know the area, if you know Nova Scotia, that would happen to a bootlegger there. <laughs> really? Well, so sure. Okay, all right. Uh, in the ensuing scuffle, Donald tried to act as peacemaker. For his troubles, the bootlegger hit Donald with a couple of whacks from the two-by-four. Oh. Another member of the gang stepped in, and the bootlegger received worse. But it was Donald who police charged. Mm. In court, he was found not guilty of assault, but was sentenced to a day in jail for stealing a bottle of wine, end quote. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the extent of his criminal record right there. A day in jail for stealing a bottle of wine from a, a guy who was already... It's not a bad price for a wine. <laughs> I guess not. I'm just saying. Junior and his other Mi'kmaq pals would have old school fistfights with other gangs of kids off in Wentworth Park, the very same park where Sandy Seal had been stabbed. 20 hours after the incident on May 29, 1971, 17-year-old Sandy Seal, who was, according to Bill Swan's book, Real Justice, quote, an elite hockey player, an athlete, church-going black youth in Sydney, Nova Scotia, died of his wounds, end quote. Mm. Jeez. The vicious assault was now a homicide, and cops had to figure out who'd done it. Donald Marshall had looked at the lineup at the police station but did not recognize anyone in it. Police, though, began to focus on Junior Marshall himself. They didn't like his behavior in the multiple interviews they'd had with him. His story would change slightly, timeline-wise in points, 
but always he stuck to the description of the two men he claimed had stabbed Sandy to death and injured his arm. Okay. It was clear Donald didn't like police. His tattoo told them so. They didn't seem to like him either. You know, I mean, yeah, if you get a tattoo that says, I hate something. I hate cops, and the cops are the ones that you're dealing with? Yeah, like, you you, you have to know when getting that tattoo. Like, this could be a precarious... Uh, well, it, it, he was 17 be, years old. I, I know, but... You, he he's not gonna think that far ahead. I wouldn't have. But that's why you're not. I can't. I couldn't think the next day. That's but it's, you're not allowed to get tattoos until you're an adult or you have parent permission. I know lots of kids who got tattoos and nobody, there wasn't. It wasn't like a formal tattoo parlor. I don't think. <laughs> yeah, good point. It was point. probably Donald and his buddies giving yeah. each other tattoos. Yeah, yeah. That I'm just saying. It that, wasn't that like ta- a regulated thing. <laughs> All right, I get it. I'm just saying. Have you that, seen the Trailer Park Boys? I have. I have. Okay. I I'm just saying, you got to know at some point. Like, th- if I if I ever have to deal with a cop, this could be not great. I'm sure that did not ever go through his mind. No, clearly. Maynard Chant was interviewed too. His story began to change. Police claimed they had a witness who'd quote seen him in the park. <laughs> Even though they did not, yeah, they referred to this earlier. They referred to his earlier statement they'd neglected to follow up on that he'd quote seen everything. Yeah, he'd better be forthcoming. They said he'd already admitted to drinking a bit that night, which breached his probation. Cops were telling him he knew more than he was giving and might be looking at jail if he didn't tell them what he knew. Mm-hmm. So he told them what he thought yeah. they wanted to hear. I thought that's where that was going to go. Yep. According to Bill Swan's book, Real Justice, Convicted for Being Mi'kmaq, Maynard made his statement with cops, prompting him to continue between each sentence. Quote, Okay then, said Maynard. I was walking across the railroad, the railway tracks in Wentworth... Okay then, said Maynard. I was walking across the railway tracks in Wentworth Park. I seen two fellows walking with two more kind of slow, talking. The two fellows who stabbed Donald Marshall and Sandy Seal, they talked for a few minutes over on Crescent Street. One fellow hauled a knife from his pocket and stabbed one of the fellows, so I took off back across the tracks to Bing Avenue and started to walk toward the bus terminal. Then I see Donald Marshall coming down. I turned around and started to walk the other way. Donald cut up with me and said, look what they did to me. He showed me a long cut on his left arm. Then he said, help me, my buddy is over on the other side of the park with a knife in his stomach. Then we started to look for more help, end quote. So this is what we... Maynard gave a different description, though, of the other two men that Marshall had told him he'd seen. Maynard had not actually seen the two guys. Okay. okay. He couldn't quite recall what Donald had told him, so he tried his best. Yeah. He hadn't actually been there. His first encounter with Marshall was when Marshall had run up to him begging for help. The rest of it was bullshit to help to keep him out of jail. So the walking on the railway tracks and stuff, All like that hearing stuff. the conversation. Yeah. Okay, all right. So he's telling the cops, okay, I think he, they want to hear about these other two guys. Yep. So he's telling them about yep. them. Because but they're the, leveraging jail if you don't. Yeah. But then they're looking at Marshall's, what Marshall says yeah. they look like, and it doesn't match with what this guy is saying. Yep. So what's up with Marshall? Why are these stories different? Mm-hmm. John Practico, 16, the only non-native member of Donald Marshall's gang, 
and I put gang in quotes because it's just a group, loose group of guys hanging yeah, around. Yeah. They called themselves the Shipyards Gang or something like that. He was pulled in for questioning. At first, telling cops that he'd seen Marshall and Seal in the park that night, but also after hearing a scream, saw two men described as, quote, bikers running from the scene and hopping into a white VW bug. So here's another different yeah. description of yes. these two men. Cops thought Practico's first statement was a lie to protect his buddy, of course. Mm -hmm. This time, investigators took Practico back to the scene, so they interviewed him again. They wanted to get the, quote, truth from him. Mm -hmm. They called him a liar and threatened him with jail for obstruction of justice. <sighs> so terrified of jail, he's only 16 years old. Yeah. John Practico told a story, too. Mm. I mean, I can't say that that is terrible work by the officers because I think that's probably pretty common is to, to scare somebody into talking mm -hmm. but when you do that that does elicit especially with youth false confessions yes. or false information yes and, but because you're a cop because you're fo because you're focused on one thing yeah you want things to confirm your previous bias absolutely confirmation yeah. bias yep so it's, this is very interesting. So Practico told them he'd been drinking in nearby bushes watching Sandy Seal and Donald Marshall arguing. He described Marshall stabbing Sandy Seal once and mm. then Seal crumpling to the ground and clutching his stomach. The only real truth in Practico's story that is that he was drunk in a bush and had seen Marshall and Seal together early on. He too was telling cops what they wanted to hear. Mm. Shit. Cops went back to Maynard Chant. Harder now. They called him a liar and questioned his story about the two men he'd seen leaving the scene. Mm. They told Maynard that he was playing with his own freedom here. Oh, okay. Had there actually been two other men in the park? Maynard Chant admitted he hadn't really seen them, but went on to throw Junior Marshall under the bus. He said although he could not hear what the two men were arguing about, he had in fact seen Junior stab Sandy Seal. <sighs> the cops had exactly what they wanted. Two eyewitnesses who had seen Donald Marshall Jr. fatally stab Sandy Seal. Yeah, this doesn't look good for Donald Marshall. No. Uh, accurate or not, you can see where this is going. Uh, Sydney police bullied another young female witness who remembered seeing two men in the park with Sandy Seal and Donald Marshall. They told her she was lying to protect <sighs> Junior Marshall and threatened her with jail. She too changed her story. She now claimed only seeing Marshall and Seal in the park that night. All these allegations are later backed up in court documents and the Royal Commission that was later struck to investigate the case. You can't just keep telling people you're going to jail if you don't tell us what we want. But I don't think the police actually saw. I don't think it was a malicious thing. No, I think I don't think so either. I think it was like... Uh, Systemically we, incorrect. We Yeah, we believe this is what happened. Yeah. And we need confirmation of that. This is how I think this always goes down. Yeah. I think you have a bunch of cops who are trying to do a good job. Yeah. Whether or not people actually get framed is a whole other yeah. thing. But in this case, I think people thought this is the best job I can do. They have bias around the person's race because Donald yep. Marshall was a, quote, dirty Indian. Yeah, in, in the 70s. Right. Really, yep. 
But, uh, you know, it's just one of those, there's all these factors that lead up to this. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. I think in their minds, they're not doing anything wrong because they know who did it and they're getting somebody terrible off the streets. That's what they're thinking. So with, with this female witness, yep. uh, now she's saying, no, I didn't really see those two guys. Yep. Those two inconvenient people yep. are removed from the story. From the story. They yep. don't exist anymore. Yep. So what happens next? You've got to find somebody. Well, you already have him. On June yep. 4th, yep. 1971, Donald Marshall Jr., 17-year-old son of the Mi'kmaq Grand Chief, was arrested and charged in adult court with the murder of Sandy Seal. Fuck. Oh, yeah. And so we'll take a break here. And we're back. Donald Marshall Jr. went to trial in November of 1971. Much was made of his I Hate Cops tattoo in the trial. Yeah, yeah. According to Bill Swan's book, Real Justice Convicted for Being Mi'kmaq, the doctor who'd initially said Marshall's wound was not self-inflicted but could have been, was asked on the stand if the wound had the appearance of being self-inflicted. The jury heard the response, it's possible. <sighs> so mm-hmm. what's that going to, if you're in the jury, you're thinking, hmm, interesting. Yeah, oh, no, that's Because you don't hear the now. initial yep. statement, you hear what this guy says on the stand. Yep, you're thinking that is absolutely now a distinct possibility. Yeah. Maynard Chant and the terrified female witness told their, quote, stories from the stand, but even though John Practico had a crisis of conscience on the stand saying Junior didn't kill nobody, mm. nobody bought what he was saying. They just thought he was trying to cover up yeah. for his friend, yeah. Yeah. his they, gang mate. They're not thinking about it like a crisis of conscience. They're thinking about it as yeah. he's trying to save his buddy. And when I say gang mate, it's not like... They're gang members. It's not like organized, like the Crips and the Bloods, and they're out like or the mob or something. No, no. it's just a bunch of kids. Yeah, it's just a bunch of kids. We had a gang of kids that would hang around too. We didn't call ourselves anything, but oh, with that thug life, Mike. Oh, it was stupid. Uh, Donald Marshall Jr. testified in his own defense, sticking to his story about two other men, one younger, one older, asking for a cigarette. Donald claimed the other man said that. He didn't like black people, using a word I won't repeat. After that, the older man stabbed Seal, slashed Donald, and then they both ran off. Whew. Whew. From Bill Swan's Real Justice, Convicted of Being Mi'kmaq, the prosecution closed with these statements. Okay. Quote, They, the Crown and the police, have given you the best evidence that you could possibly get, and that's an eyewitness not one eyewitness, but two eyewitnesses. And I suggest to you that the Crown has discharged its obligation, and it is your duty, bound under the oath that you took for office, to find the accused guilty as charged, end quote. Stated very uh, matter-of-factly. The all-white jury, made up of only men who'd been glowering at Junior Marshall the whole time over the few days of the brief trial, came back after four hours of deliberation. Donald Marshall, in their eyes, was guilty of the murder of Sandy Seal. All-white male jury. Mm-hmm. Jury of his peers. Oh, yeah, those are his peers. Yeah. 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 Nailed it. From Bill Swan's Real Justice, convicted for being Mi'kmaq, quote, At 4.45 p.m. on November 5th, 1971, 
Justice Dubinsky asked Donald to stand while he pronounced the sentence. The sentence of this court is that you, Donald Marshall Jr., shall be imprisoned in Dorchester Penitentiary in Dorchester, New Brunswick, subject to the rules and regulations of that institution for life. End quote. Now, we know this happens a lot uh, to this day, but can you imagine just like you're a victim as well. You watched your buddy get killed. Mm-hmm. And now... So that that's bad enough. And now you're being told you have to spend the rest of your life in jail. Well, we don't know if he's not guilty yet. Maybe this is all uh, a story, Scott. Well, I, I'm just hypothesizing here. Well, let's find out. Do you let's, want to find out? I would really like that. Junior Marshall was carted off to prison. His family wept for their son's life was effectively over. Only 10 days after Marshall's conviction... On November 15, 1971, mm-hmm. a 25-year-old man named James William McNeil came to the Sydney Police Department. Oh. He had a story to tell. It was bothering him so much that he could not sleep at night. Oh, this is going to be interesting then. So t- this is 10 days after ten Marshall's days. conviction. Yeah. 10 days. It's fresh. From Bill Swan's Real Justice Convicted for Being Mi'kmaq, quote, that Indian didn't do it. He told police, I was there. Roy Ebsery stabbed that kid, end quote. Oh, wow. So 10 days after. 10 days after the conviction. There's somebody saying, I was there. Here's the name of somebody who did it. Yeah. So this guy is the Uh, second guy who is with the person who Donald Marshall claims stabbed stabbed Sandy Seal. Yeah. McNeil claimed he and Roy Ebsery, a 59-year-old ship's cook, were drinking at the State Tavern on George Street in Sydney most of the evening, and they were drunkenly cutting through the park that night. Mm-hmm. Ebsery had a reputation for being cranky, especially unpredictable and even violent when drunk. Mm-hmm. He had been convicted on a weapons charge involving a knife previously. Okay, so he has a history of knife uh, use, uh, use yep. in kn- knife crimes. Ebsery also matched almost exactly the description that Donald Marshall had given to police of the older man in the incident, the man who had stabbed Sandy Seal. McNeil claimed that he and Ebsery were approached from behind by Marshall and Seal. From Bill Swan's Real Justice Convicted for Being Mi'kmaq, McNeil said, quote, The Indian put my right hand up behind my back. The colored fellow said, Dig, man, dig. Then Roy Ebsery said, I got something for you. He put his hand in his right pocket, took out a knife, and drove it into the colored fellow's side. (sighs) What side, the investigator asked. Left-hand side of the colored fellow. I seen Roy's hand and knife full of blood, McNeil said. Did you see the Indian being stabbed, the investigating officer asked. No, I did not, said McNeil. What happened then, asked the officer. Roy went home, and I went with him. He washed the knife under the tap and washed his hands off. Then he told me not to say anything about it, said McNeil. Did you ask him why he had done it, asked the officers. Yes, he said it was self-defense, end quote. Mm. RCMP interviewed Roy Ebsery, who said he knew nothing. His family said they didn't see anything at all. But, unknown to the cops, his 13-year-old daughter had actually seen him washing his hands and the knife oh. off with blood. Oh, okay. That night. All so, right. But they didn't interview her. Well, in their mind, well, we've already got 
the right person convicted. We just have to do this for the sake of saying we've done it, is what I'm imagining. They gave Roy Ebsery a polygraph, and they felt he was being truthful. Oh, okay. Well. McNeil was re-interviewed by RCMP, who believed he'd made the story up. From Bill Swan's Real Justice, convicted for being Mi'kmaq, quote, On December 21st, 1971, an RCMP officer filed a report that said he had conducted a thorough review of the case and concluded that Donald Marshall Jr. had stabbed Sandy Seal, Merry Christmas Donald, end quote. Okay. Uh, so they they looked into it. They interviewed some people. Yeah, yes, I, technically they did. After failed appeals, three years into his sentence, Donald Marshall admitted to killing Sandy Seal. Not because he'd done it, because he'd get no chances at parole yeah, otherwise. Yeah. Even though he'd been in a few fights in prison, he was moved to Spring Hill, a medium security facility. Mm-hmm. After his transfer, he recanted his confession, according to Bill Swan's book, telling, quote, his classification officer that he had confessed simply to get to Spring Hill. He insisted that he had not killed Sandy Seal, end quote. Yes. So he just wanted out of Dorchester. So that that's something I think of. Of a lot, uh, like you know, typically we hear that your only real chance of parole is coming clean. Yeah, is coming clean. So if you really are, if you're convicted, yeah, your only chance of parole is coming clean, even though you didn't do it. That's the and and that's what I I, I struggle with constantly is it's bizarre. It is that yeah, if you are actually innocent, yeah, then then you ain't getting out. No. If you tell the truth, you're not getting out. So you're almost forced to have to lie if you do end up wanting parole. Yeah. And so it's just, it's, and I get why they have that there. It's an important piece to have there because you need to know somebody's contrite and yeah. uh, uh, is genuinely growing and denying that you've done something isn't growth. Yeah. But if you're actually innocent, you're fucked. So Donald Marshall made some more appeals over the next three years mm-hmm. for early release, and guess what? They were denied Denied. Okay. because he had now insisted again that he hadn't killed yeah. Sandy Seal. He recanted, yeah. Yeah. To be honest. Yeah. To be truthful. He, he decided, yeah, I need to be truthful with myself, but yeah. the courts didn't see it that way. Nope. Very bizarre. Yep. <laughs> In 1978... This is seven years into his sentence. Overseen by guards, Marshall and some other prisoners were taken out on a camping trip where they swam and fished. Okay. So that happens apparently sometimes, I learned (laughs) while I was doing the research. (laughs) So maybe those guys that are camping nearby and they seem to have these guys stand around them with guns are prisoners, are murderers who are out camping. I'm assuming supervised camping. Yes. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because that's fine. You can't sneak away from Isn't that a weird? Per- it is pretty bizarre. Yeah. Um, no more camping for me. So in 1979, eight years into his sentence, Marshall applied to participate in a, quote, week-long canoe trip of the Native Brotherhood canoeing expedition. His application was accepted, but on the trip, Marshall escaped, escaped and ran off into the swamps. Even though he'd been tracked by cops in a plane above, Marshall evaded detection. Hmm. He made his way to Granton, Nova Scotia. His girlfriend, Shelley, lived there. He'd met her in prison three years prior when she was visiting her brother. Marshall was found in the closet in Shelley's niece's room by RCMP officers 
and soon after taken away at gunpoint. He was transferred back to Dorchester Maximum Security on Halloween of 1980. Well, we don't want him escaping again. Yeah, I mean, again, it's the... I remember when he escaped. I oh, remember, did you? I remember yeah. all of this. So was at that... Not the 1971, because I was yeah. two. Was at that time, was everybody, the public, firmly in belief that he had done it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so but, there but was... Because we had no other information. Yeah, okay. All we knew that there was a murderer who had run off... Yeah. Uh, you know, while yep. they were on a escorted day trip. Yep. Okay. That's it, all we knew. What an odd, like, again, I, you're innocent and you know that you're not going to get out because you're not going to admit guilt. And here's this opportunity to get your own freedom. Yep. Like, not to say like, no, oh, that was a smart thing to do. Go for it. Yeah. But I'm just trying to put myself in this person's shoes. Right. If he were innocent. Interesting, right? Yeah, very, very interesting. In 1981, so 10 years into his sentence, Donald Marshall met Shelley's other brother, Mitchell. He came to the prison to visit and met Donald Marshall, but he had a story for him. Oh, I like stories. From Bill Swan's Real Justice, convicted for being Mi'kmaq, quote, They chatted for a while before Mitchell asked Donald if he knew a guy named Roy Ebsery. Donald said he didn't know the man. Mm. Mitchell knew Roy and had one time even lived at Ebsery's house. Oh, wow, okay. Then Mitchell said something that Donald had wanted to hear for more than 10 years. Roy Ebsery had once told him he killed a black guy and stabbed an Indian in Wentworth Park in 1971. Holy shit. Donald was stunned, of course. Yeah. He now had the name of the man who'd stabbed Sandy Seal. All he had to do was prove it. And he would be a free man, end oh, quote. Could you imagine how he felt in that moment? What a small world, right? Oh, yeah. So it's like, oh, my girlfriend's brother happened to live with the guy who actually did it. Who, a girlfriend who I'd met in prison. Yeah. Like, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't like they ran in the no. same circles. No. And so, we, yeah. Really weird. Very. Super crazy coincidence. Donald Marshall Jr. hired a new lawyer who took the claims to the Sydney police. As the officer who had been the lead investigator on the case was originally was now the chief, <laughs> the case was turned over to the RCMP. Yeah. So all this is going to come out that, holy crap, Roy Ebsery and uh, this James McNeil were already on the radar. Because 10 years ago. Because one had come to them to say. Right. You 10 know, years and, and, ago. Yeah. Yeah. So Donald Marshall so, has been in jail this entire time. When the actual killer had been identified by the partner. Yeah. It was written off. Yeah. Yep. Mm. So heading up the R RCMP investigation was Staff Sergeant Harry Wheaton. And Harry was now the leading the drug squad in Sydney. And sometimes he was called Dirty Harry as he was known to be quite a terrier with his cases. <laughs> I remember Harry Wheaton well. Oh, okay. His daughter, Lisa, and I went were in the same class at school. Oh. I took sailing lessons with her, and we used to chum around the year before when her dad was the staff sergeant in Bridgewater. Oh, wow. I remember them at the yacht club on their boat in Snug Harbor, tied up to ours. Harry was a tall, slim, but wiry, blonde hair, blue-eyed guy whose demeanor demanded respect. He was like... You could see he was a cop. Did he have a mustache? Uh, I don't remember at the time. I don't really remember the mustache, but there might have been one. I really hope there was. Harry Wheaton was on the case on February 16th, learning everything he could, including 
uncovering the previous interactions with Ebsery mm-hmm. and McNeil. On February 22nd, 1982, Roy Ebsery, now 70 years old, admitted over the phone to stabbing Sandy Seal, Whoa. albeit in self-defense. Whoa. The problem was he would not come in and officially admit it. So he would admit it, oh, I'm on the phone, we're having a conversation, I did it, but are, uh, we need you to come in and sign a confession. No, I'm no, not no, 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 I'm not going to yeah, do that. No, no. From Bill Swan's Real Justice, convicted for being Mi'kmaq, quote, Wheaton needed hard evidence. Greg Ebsery, Roy's son, turned over 10 knives that had been stored in a wooden basket in the Ebsery home. Analysis showed that one knife still held traces of fibers from the yellow jacket that Donald Marshall had worn Mm. that night almost 11 years earlier, and also fibers from the brown coat worn by Sandy Seal. Oh, wow. End quote. Okay, there's some evidence. So the RCMP had gotten their man. Yeah. Wheaton told Donald about the development, but the stories didn't match up. McNeil was saying that they were rolled by Marshall and Seal. You know, they were mugged. Mm -hmm. Marshall admitted that he and Seal had panhandled Roy Ebsery, asking him for change. Okay. And that is when the man went nuts and stabbed him. A bit of an overreaction. Yeah. So now the story made more sense. Donald admitted he held his information back to keep himself out of trouble. But as we see, it blew up on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? So they're like, yeah, give me all your change. Give us some change kind of thing. yeah. It wasn't like they hurt them or mugged them or anything, yep. but they're saying, like, give us your change. Yeah. So Roy Epsery stabs them, and they're like, it came out of nowhere. Yep. And so that's where that, yeah, it's cognitive dissonance, right? Like, you know something's up. Yeah. So you're not getting the whole story. Yeah. So you think, because you're not getting the whole story, Donald Marshall is the one who actually did yep. it, and these other two guys don't yep. exist. Yeah. Donald said he was willing to testify against Ebsery in court if it ever got that far, and it eventually did. On questioning, all three witnesses, Chant, Practico, and the girl, all recanted their testimony, claiming it was coerced by the Sydney police officers on the case, doggedly trying to pin the killing on Donald Marshall Jr. As we were talking about, yeah. After much legal back and forth on the case, as ordered by then-Justice Minister Jean Chrétien... <laughs> On May 10, 1983, almost 12 years since Sandy Seal had been stabbed in Wentworth Park, according to Bill Swan's Real Justice, quote, the court concluded that in light of all the evidence before it, no reasonable jury could, on that evidence, find Donald Marshall Jr. guilty of the murder of Sandy Seal, end quote. Oh. Donald Marshall was free. Holy shit. Right? Wow. In 1985... Roy Ebsery was convicted after three trials for the manslaughter of Sanford Sandy Seal back on May 28, 1971. Ebsery's sentence, initially three years, was reduced to one year by the Nova Scotia Court of Appeals, mostly due to his ill health. Oh, I hate that. The man who called himself the Reverend Captain Roy Newman Ebsery died of natural causes in 1988. Oh, gee, okay. So Donald Marshall spends 11 years in prison for a murder. He didn't commit. He didn't commit. But yet the actual convicted murderer. Manslaughterer. Mm-hmm. Right. And still killing. White manslaughterer. Mm-hmm. Yep. Gets 
effectively oh, a year. Oh, you're an old man. Let's give him yeah. a break. I'm sick old man. You get a year. Yeah. Oh. Yep. Donald Marshall Sr., Grand Chief of the Mi'kmaq Nation, on hearing of Epsery's death, simply said, we sympathize with the family. Well, that's... That's pretty big of him. That's, uh, yeah. So his wow. son is in jail for 11 years. And that just tells you the quality of Donald Marshall Sr. Yeah, of, of that family. A royal commission on Marshall's prosecution was called by Jean Chrétien in 1989. Anne Derrick, QC, well-known social justice advocate, lawyer, and daughter of my favorite history teacher, John Derrick. <laughs> I know, here's another what weird... What the hell, Mike? I know. Worked as Marshall's counsel during the inquiry. So she was Donald Marshall's lawyer during yep. the inquiry, the yep. Royal Inquiry. She's since gone on to become a justice with the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal. Oh, cool. Uh, in a big part due to this case. Yeah. After another three years, 19 years after Donald Marshall Jr. was wrongfully convicted, a 16,000-page Royal Commission report was released. No, thanks. Not reading. I read the summary. Oh, the su some, okay. Yeah, Which was like 100 pages. Nope, still not reading. Under the following headings, the Royal Commission made many recommendations. One, righting the wrong, dealing with the wrongfully convicted. Two, visible minorities in the criminal justice system. Three, Nova Scotia Mi'kmaq and the criminal justice system. Four, blacks in the criminal justice system. Five, administration of criminal justice. Six, police and policing. So race and bias yes. were a clear, Huge. a clear part of the summary. Huge. And so here's from early in the report, quote, Having found that racism played a part in Donald Marshall Jr.'s wrongful conviction and imprisonment, we believed it was important to ensure that our justice system will not and cannot be influenced by the color of a person's skin. Well, yeah. While we recognize that many of the causes of discrimination are rooted in institutions and social structures outside of the criminal justice system, we believe there are many specific steps that can and should be taken to reduce discrimination in the justice system itself. And so they went on to make a ton of recommendations that I won't get into. Yeah. yeah. But you can read the report. I've posted a link to it on our in our show notes. Uh, Donald Marshall Jr. was a paid a, was paid approximately two hundred and seventy thousand dollars for his time in prison, as well as a lifetime monthly pension. Okay, right, not a lot of money. Nope. He chose to go back to the fishery where he ran into some legal trouble briefly over fishing rights, but it was just a blip compared to what he'd been through before. Yeah. Uh... There were some other run-ins uh, with the law, but they didn't amount to jail time. One has to wonder. Would he have become chief of the Mi'kmaq Nation at some point if his life hadn't been derailed? I mean, clearly spending 11 years in jail mm -hmm. is going to change you. Yeah. It's going to change you. It's going to mess you. with you. Absolutely. Uh, $270,000. I get this was many, many years ago, but 270000 no. No. No, no, no. Millions, in my opinion. He could have had a really different life. Yeah, absolutely. He His life was altered. The course of his life was altered dramatically by this. Before his own death on August 6, 2009, due to respiratory complications from a 2003 lung transplant, oh. Donald Marshall had used some of his money to run camps for at-risk Indigenous youth. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. In February of 2019, 
very recently. Yeah. Global News reported on one such change that was surely influenced, no doubt, by the uh, hmm. Marshall Commission, a new Nova Scotia policy which better ensures the fair treatment of Indigenous peoples in court. Okay. And here's some audio of that. The new policy is called the Fair Treatment of Indigenous People in Criminal Prosecution. It's designed to guide Crown attorneys on how to conduct criminal prosecutions of Indigenous people and take into account their unique history and culture. It also takes into account the history of racism and discrimination, problems faced by the Indigenous communities. We felt it was time to recognize the changes that had occurred had occurred in the law with respect to the treatment of, uh, of um, accused persons who are, of indi are indigenous, um, and as well victims uh, who are indigenous, uh, to ensure that they feel uh, respected and, and treated fairly during the course of a criminal prosecution. Ingrid Brody wrote the policy and hopes it addresses the fact that Indigenous people are disproportionately involved in the justice system. The history of deprivation, the history of uh, economic uh, lack of economic opportunity and family disruption, it's led to increased uh, rates in the criminal justice system and that recognition means that we can then make different choices in terms how a person uh, of Indigenous background um, is prosecuted through each stage of a proceeding. The fair treatment policy forces the Crown to consider all unique factors and conduct culturally competent prosecutions for Indigenous people as recognized by the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, Crowns have to make a multitude of decisions over the course of our day-to-day -day job and so any time that we can look to something to give us guidance, um, to give us some certainty, some consistency, um, that's much appreciated and I think that's one of the reasons why the policy was so well received by Crowns. The policy touches on all stages of the criminal justice system. Several Mi'kmaq lawyers familiar with the system were consulted before the policy was finalized. Whitney Oikel, Global News, Halifax. So good on you Nova Scotia for doing that. Okay, but am I correct in hearing that this policy didn't start until 2019? That's correct. It, well, it probably took some time to get the, the kinks worked out. Absolutely. And I mean... Only 20 years. Yeah, better late... Oh, than, actually 30. Better, 30. better late than never. Shocking to hear that this policy took that long mm. to be put in place. But yeah, again, still good, good on them. But wow. Yeah. Wow. Imagine so... Yeah, okay, I'm not going <laughs> to go off. So as well as my personal brushes with violent crime, it was Harry Wheaton's involvement in this case that drew me further into the true into true crime when I read Michael Harris's book, yeah. Justice Denied, and saw the TV movie of the same name. I've always enjoyed the fact that I knew somebody who helped free an innocent man. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. And also, uh, as I mentioned, John Derrick's uh, daughter. Um, mm -hmm. That's that's kind of cool too. Like I yeah. have two connections to this case. A very very uh, very very surreal. Yeah, and people have actually. I got an email this week about how how odd it is that Canada. It always seems to be a, a strange world, and how we're so much smaller, and there's connections. Like for example, um, last week's case, uh, Chadrick Mul Mulvihill. Yes, and now mm -hmm. he lives in Surrey. Guess what? What's that? I'm sitting at lunch or at breakfast with my buddy Art yesterday, and oh yeah, he used to live next door to us. So they knew him when he was a kid. 
he and his wife. Yeah, it's just so crazy. We we both have so many yeah personal connections to a lot of the cases we cover. It's just bizarre. Canada is the like I say is the smallest large country on the planet. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And looking back, I remember the '70s and '80s as being tough for the indigenous kids that I knew in Nova Scotia. Uh, many had been scooped and adopted out to white families, mm. often far away from their homes, to help them quote assimilate no. into white culture. Yeah, that's not happening. No, I remember quite a few of them were angry or had been seen as kids with behavioral issues, and they were often bullied as well. And I'm saddened to admit that I was not always kind to of these kids either, not all of them, mm-hmm. and spent time and looking down my own nose at them. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, but it wasn't something that I was taught by my parents. I think it was that weird mob mentality. Yeah, no, for absolutely. Yeah, there I, were a lot more to, more of us white kids than indigenous kids in school. So, uh, you know, being no, ignorant is easy. Yeah, and wanting to impress friends and go along yeah. with, yeah, all, all of that stuff. I'm for not sure. proud of any of that. But no, I, you know. but good on you for a, a, a admitting. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, yeah, and... Can you imagine uh, being torn from your home? Yeah, simply because you're indigenous and put into another household. Like, yeah, you're damn right. I'd be fucking pissy. Yeah, I'd be. I'd be pretty upset and pretty caught. Con- like, my god. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. No, you, can, that you can't is, even fathom it. Like, but that is part of our history. It's not a nice part of our history. That's for sure. Nope. Wow. And that's it for this week's story. Oh, and on a high note. Great. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, on a, and on a high note. I mean, you know, it is dark history. So No, uh, it, it fits the label of the show for sure. Yeah, but, for sure. But yeah. I mean, we address it, I think, in a way where uh, we're hoping to bring some sort of understanding and the fact that we're able to view Canadian history in the way that we do. This case is, you know, um, an interesting one because... Like I say, race did play a big part in this this young man's conviction. Yeah, it, we love our country. I love being able to say I'm a Canadian. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that this is where I I was born and raised. We, but the that does draw only too, you know? for sure. But that doesn't mean we're naive or blind to what has happened in our country. That's right. And I think us acknowledging speaking our disgust yeah. hoping for change is actually part of what makes our country so great is that we don't want to sugarcoat anything it, it's that's what will help this country become stronger and a better place is by us saying yeah we we did some shitty things and we're not going to pretend like we didn't that's right we're not going to pretend like uh it wasn't a big deal or oh well that was just a long time ago no it had serious 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 ramifications Mm -hmm. for the indigenous community all kinds of shit that was done to them and it still has a massive impact on the indigenous community and we've got to fix that shit agreed <sighs> there you go now on with the fun part of the show okay <laughs> which is always the uh the patreon shout outs i i always look forward to that. yeah same here so first up we have somebody who we don't know where they're from well at least i don't and it looks like her name is zelda barrett yeah well, i know where she's from where's she from nintendo Oh, is that a place? There's an actual. It's an, it's an actual place. It's in Japan, though. No. 
India. Is it next to Nanaimo? It's in India, of all. Well, yeah, I know. I thought N- Nintendo would be next to Nanaimo. No, yeah. Grab yourself a Nintendo bar. <laughs> I want a Nintendo bar now. Wow, that should be a thing. No, but... Uh, so the, is Zelda a princess? She is every... People don't know this. The, oh. ta- the town of, of Zelda, every Nintendo game is based off of actual people living in Zelda. Oh. Or living in Nintendo, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It's little known. You would think that would get a lot more press, but it, it doesn't. And so she's one of the pioneers of the video gaming industry, really. Interesting. Yeah. Yep. Next up from Victoria, BC, is right Amanda Gagnard. Uh, Amanda, right next door. Right next door. Right, right next door across the Wawas. <laughs> That's adorable, mate. Little waters. Yeah. Oh, I and, got it. and this one, there's an umlaut in uh, on the O in oh. the o, in the last name, but I'm just gonna I love me pronounce it as Maria Wallstrom. Okay, all right, Maria, thank you, thank yeah. you for your your. But where's Maria from? She's got an umlaut, so maybe it's Germany. Yeah, it is actually. Oh wow, okay. great, great guess. But do you know where uh, specifically? No, Dusseldorf. Dusseldorf. Yeah, it's just because you like the word Dusseldorf. I can't help where she's from. Okay, I might I may really love saying that name, but Dusseldorf. But that's just that happens to be where she's. Is from. she a strudel maker? Holy shit! Did you read her biography? Or I something? must have. Yeah, Mike. Because I I you know, Maria Wallstrom's uh, the art of the strudel is a well known book. Oh my god! I don't read a lot, but it's I didn't good, know but... she was from Dusseldorf because she didn't really. Uh, I'm just interested try, in the recipes. She, I yeah. don't like the biographical. She tries to not make it about her. Her, her writings, and so she doesn't talk too much in depth about. Good yeah. for you, Maria. Yeah, she's really humble. I, I really, I really like her. Sharon Dale is from Leicester, Massachusetts. You know, doesn't that sound like a, a town in the United States? Sharon Dale. I'm from Sharon Dale. Sharon Dale in Leicester, Massachusetts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it does it? It does. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you very much, Bridget. Bridget Connors, and she is from. Rosebud in Victoria, Australia. Oh my goodness. Rosebud. Yeah, right? Have you ever seen Citizen Kane, Scott? Oh, we're talking like 30 years ago. But you have seen it. Yeah. Okay, I, I, I now now we can remain friends. Okay. Wow. Wow. That uh, Any relation to Sarah, by the way, Bridget? Say Sarah. It, say it out loud. Oh, Sarah Connor. There you go. Oh, yeah. I got you, Sarah Connors. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Next up is Laurel Phillips. Oh. Hi, Laurel. Is she one of the Phillips family, like John Phillips, Michelle Phillips, like the Mamas and the Papas family? No, no, the cigarette chain. Oh, Phillips. Yeah, so. Philip Morris. Yeah. Yeah, that's not a Phillips, isn't it? I guess Philip Morris is. They do names backwards. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, they do names backwards. And so, you know, uh, but thankfully, Laurel is uh, outspoken against her family's uh, tobacco history. I gotcha. Yeah. Because boo cigarettes. And we want to say thanks to Jennifer Guidry, oh. who also sent us some more donut money. Uh, there was a mix-up between her bank and the and the, the PayPal, and I think we've got that all ironed out now. Oh, so. oh. Thanks to Jennifer. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, Beth Samuels. She is from Billings, Montana. Oh, wow. And my friend was... Oh, this is Beth and Ryan. Um, oh, it's a double. Yeah, double. So they're they're from Billings, Montana. Thank you, Beth and Ryan. So thank you, Beth and Ryan. For your kindness. You're beautiful people. Beautiful people? No, they're gorgeous people this week. Well, but I wasn't singing it, so we were safe. Okay. 
Jesse Henry from Portland, Oregon. Jesse Henry. Uh, one of my very favorite places to go and buy donuts. It's one of my. It's one of the places I need to go. Is Portland? You haven't been there? No, I, I really... think we need to do a live show in Portland. At oh some fuck, point. that would be great! I really, really, really want to go to Portland. Holly Dingle <laughs> from Edmonton, Alberta. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Edmonton's representing lately. They really are, and wow. we thank you, Albertans and specifically Edmontonians. Yeah, and, and Holly, thank you, Holly. Victoria Nielsen, who I know is from Denmark. Okay. But uh, I'm not sure what she does in Denmark, and I'm sure it's not make Danishes. No, no, Nielsen. So uh, she invented the Nielsen ratings. Oh, for TV? Yep. Oh, I thought that was an American name, mm-hmm. Nielsen. You thought wrong. You thought wrong. Wow. I'm sorry to break that to you. No, Thanks, no. Victoria, for, yeah. for helping us see a bunch of shitty TV that we didn't really want to see. Well, but, I mean, it's not her fault. She invented the ratings. Uh, she invented the Nielsen system, rating system. But she did not, it's not her fault that shitty TV. Well, actually, yeah. Well, well it wasn't her intent, I should say. I gotcha. It wasn't her intent. So I, I, gotcha. I hold no animosity to Victoria. Danielle Belusi. Oh, wow. Okay. I don't know where Danielle's from, though. Apparently you do, though. Yeah, I'm, well, I know, this is why I, I, it's a good thing I know everybody. Okay. And I know what they do and where they're from. <sighs> I'm disturbed. Yeah, she's from New Delhi. Oh, another person from India? Yeah, yeah. We don't t- tend to get a lot of listeners in India. Well, that that's how Even I know. Even though there is a large English-speaking population there, mm-hmm. you Indian folk are not telling your friends. No, like clearly not. No, <laughs> word of mouth is not a big thing. You know, but that, yeah, that's where she's from. That's where she's from, and uh, and she's a juggler by trade. A juggler? Yeah. What does she juggle? Uh, mainly uh, cigarettes. I know it's not. But lit? If you think, about, yeah, of course. It's oh, if they're lit, add, that's, that's kind of hard. Because you got to think, and then every once in a while you catch one in your mouth. Yeah, because think about how light they are. Like it's hard to that's really. It's gonna be yeah. really hard. It is, but she's she's really. And then as they get lighter, because. As cigarettes, oh, it's burn part them. of the part of the trick. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, no, she's she's brilliant at it too. You should go. You got to Google her. Danielle Belusi, yeah, cigarette juggler. Yeah, Jennifer Isaacs from Ottawa, Ontario. Oh, thanks, Jennifer. Uh, another Ottawan, Ottawanian. Thank you so much. Kingston, Tennessee, representing with Sydney. Oh, Pickering, Sydney. Thank you. Muchos gracias, Tennessee. Tennessee, I was in Tennessee. I went to I went to Nashville. Oh, I don't know how close Kingston is to Nashville, and I haven't looked it up, so I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, Rosie Peterson from Wirral, New Brunswick. Oh wow, okay, yeah, wow, thank you, Rosie. Mucho, mucho gracias. Well, actually, in New Brunswick, because New Brunswick is the only real bilingual province. It would be merci. Oh, wow. Merci beaucoup, Rosie. Merci. Uh, Victoria Lauren. Thank you, Victoria. Yeah. And she said, why didn't she leave her name or her address? Because she, she should. Well, she's, she's so because she doesn't want it that public that she is the heiress to the Ralph Lauren. Oh, I gotcha. Yeah, it makes sense because you don't want, yeah. uh, you know, people, suddenly people knocking on your door. Hey, I need a loan. You know, you don't want that. You don't want that. And so she tries to keep a quiet. Sorry, uh, Victoria, for just... Oh, you just blew up her spot. I did. I did. I did. Get ready for some door knocking. There you go. Danny Ensminger. Danny? 
Yeah. With an I. Yeah. I like that spelling. Like Danny, Danny California? That's a good chili pepper it song. It is. It is. Is that where she's from? From the chili peppers? Yeah. Or no, Danny California? Uh, oh, I, I see where you went with that. Oh. And the answer is yes. Oh, well, there you go. Yes. So maybe Danny Ensminger is actually just a... Uh, like an alias, it, it, most likely. Yeah, she. Gotcha. Uh, from what I understand, she's a surfer by trade. By trade, yeah. So she tests surfboards then. No, she surfs cars on the roof of cars. That's dangerous. It's very dangerous. She could get hurt. She could get Danny, hurt. Danny, you need to look into a different job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We're concerned about you. Yeah, try the water. Try surfing in water. Yeah, try the water. Much safer, but still pretty dangerous. Kara Jennings. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I'll leave this one to you. I know that you're personal friends with Kara Oh, Jennings. because of the Jennings Swimming uh, uh, Swimwear found uh, company. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which I'm a big fan of. Yeah. I don't fit into anything, uh, especially the uh, the men's suits. I look sort of ridiculous in them. I'm a one-piecer. I look like a stuffed sausage in those. Oh. Something. But anyway, she lives in uh, Outer Sclavobia. Whole not inner Sclavonia? No, not anywhere near. No? No. No? Yeah. Oh, that's tragic. It's cold there, though. Well, I'm sure it's even colder in the outer Sclavonia. So. Yeah, so no yeah. matter which Sclavonia you live in, But it's, it's interesting that the swimwear is from outer Sclavonia. Yeah, I would imagine not a lot of swimming. Well, maybe, you know, like they do in colder countries, they, they'll they take a sauna and then they'll jump out, run out and jump into icy water. Okay, so. interesting. Yeah. That explains a lot. Yeah. Okay. Explains a lot. It does. It does. Well, there you go. So Jordan Allen, or is it Jordan O'Neill? We're not sure which you are. Jordan. It's a Jordan. We know the Jordan. And from Barrie, Ontario, is a Prime Minister, a PM. Yeah. Thank oh, you so much. Seriously, uh, Jordan. Amazing. And we still have had no PMs reach out to me to be on the sh- on our after show. No ten dollar people reach out to us for a call. But they should. They should. That's what part of your perks are that. Yeah. But you have to initiate the conversation. Let us know. And we're not cranky. We will do it. We will. And do it gladly. We would love to have. We'll let you know what our schedule is for our recording. Yep. Like a week in advance. And then we'll be able to organize something with you. Yeah. So just reach out. Just reach out. Say you'd like it. And uh, we'll figure it out. Typically, it will be on a Sunday at some point. (laughs) That's correct. Yeah. Because that's when we do our after show and yeah. polish up our show, etc. So thank you so much, Jordan, for becoming a PM. We appreciate it oh, so much. Do we ever. Uh, Chelsea Smith. Mm-hmm. Where's Chelsea from, Scott? She's from, oh, God. It, oh, it's one of those names that you forget. Oz? No. I thought her, she was from the wonderful world of Oz. No, Mike. No, that's just insulting. What? Yeah. I'm not saying she's an Oompa Loompa or like a little person. Mm, kind of what I thought you were saying. Like, no. That's pretty terrible. She's not a munchkin. Where's she from then, Scott? Help me out. Fine. If you must know, she's just simply from Toronto, Ontario. No. Yeah, it's not an exciting That's, that's <laughs> What know. does she do there? She works in a bank. <laughs> no. Close. Oh. Close. She's a mortgage. Uh Specialist. Oh, a broker. Yeah, mortgage broker. Oh, there you yeah. go. It's a good, I mean, it's a good trade. She's doing well. She's Sorry. happy. She's, Sorry, Chelsea. She, we ran out of steam. <laughs> she's <laughs> she's happy. She's living a good life. There you go. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. And we have another Chelsea. 
Which is odd, right? Right away. Battle of the Chelsea's. And that's Chelsea Ribeiro. Chelsea. Chelsea, From Prince George, BC. I wonder if she's related to Mike Ribeiro. Remember that guy? He used to play for the the Montreal, and he played for Dallas after that. Yeah, he was a very good hockey player. Yeah, he was a good hockey player, but he was also seen as uh, a bit of a... uh, an overactor when it came to penalties. Yes. Yeah, he was a diver. Yeah. He was, uh, I've been shot. Yeah. Ah. I've been shot through a, through some sort of weapon. <laughs> I think I might overact and die. <laughs> Woe is me. Does he pull out a... <laughs> Woe is me. I'm dying from the coughing. Does he pull out a monocle? As no, someone doing, gave uh... him tuberculosis, and that's why they're in the penalty box. <laughs> oh, shit. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That, that's like a 10-minute penalty. Oh, 10 minutes. 10 minutes ten. for tuberculosis. <laughs> you get 10 for tuberculosis. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, it fits. It does fit. That's a serious crime. It does. Uh, oh, look, we have money we uh, do? from donut money. Oh, sweet. Yeah, so let's see here. It's better that they do that than just send us donuts. Right? I kind of agree because, uh, yeah, Jennifer Gidry sent us some more money for donut money. Small lost credit card issue got mixed up with U.S. dollars to Canadian. Totally my fault. Big smiley face. Wait. Well, thank you. And so she sent us fifty-one. Yeah. Wow. It's like after PayPal or takes their cut. <laughs> wow, though, that's really awesome. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, Miss C. Maureen. Sent us some money, but oh. yeah, like doesn't. I don't I wonder. Did she leave us a note? I don't know. I'd love it if she did, but some people just don't. Some people are are just kind. They're just givers, and they get they give us some cashola. Yeah, and they don't leave a note. But if you do, we will always say something on it. So Miss C. Maureen Yost. Nope, no, no note. She just. Gave us some cash. Super nice of you, Maureen. So thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Much appreciated. Mucho gracioso. Gracioso. Thank you so much to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. If you want to help support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Or for one-time support, you can send us some donut money via PayPal at our email, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can send us Interact there too. And if you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribed to the show. Yes. You can easily find us on iTunes, Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Uh, I was listening to our show in a Tesla the other day. Oh, was that Sean's Tesla? No, somebody else's. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. multiple Teslas. Wow. I, how was it, Tesla? Amazing. Oh, shit. And okay. it was one of the dual engine ones, so the... Uh, he nailed it, and uh, let's just say I was back in my seat and could not move. Wow. wow. Yep. Uh, check out our website, dark, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a follow or a like on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Most importantly, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. We'll be announcing the uh, winners of the books next week oh yeah and uh interestingly we have had a number of entries oh and cool. uh as of right now as of this moment uh which you will not be able to enter when you hear this we are at 
319 entries. So I have to random. I have wow. to set up a randomizer wow. for 319 entries, and I'm sure that'll go up that from when we record this to when it releases, and the contest is. That's over. pretty awesome, but it, it's you know it's it's a great book, so it's worth it. It is definitely worth it. So, uh, dark poutine milkshake contest. People are gonna find out who won next week, Ooh. and hopefully, it's not somebody in outer Sclavobia. So. <laughs> Shipping will My be seven thousand dollars. Seven thousand, seven thousand uh, Dutch kroner. Oh, I don't, I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway. Anywho, <laughs> we are crazy. Clinically. Yep. So that's it for this week's show. Wow. We made it, Scott. We did a fascinating one. Very fascinating. I like this episode. Yeah, I, I'd like to do some more. Uh, uh, falsely convicted stuff because there's a bunch of that here in Canada, sadly. But there is a, a all over the place, and it is, um, you know, just another reason why I, I don't support the death penalty. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Can you imagine? Yeah. Putting people to death who didn't do it. I just think about the amount of innocent people who've actually been put to death. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's it. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye bye, everybody. Good and tug. Smooches.